Hey there, Pastor Mark here. It's our prayer that this message would encourage and equip you in your relationship with Jesus. We're able to provide this content due to the joyful generosity of our financial partners. And if you'd be willing to join that tribe and help get some sermons like this around the world, you can donate at harvestbaptist.info slash give. God bless. So Revelation is a book that is primarily about things to come, not exclusively, but primarily, and we've been working through this, and we are in a section of Revelation that covers what some would call the tribulation. Uh, this would be, quote unquote, in times. There is a portion of the tribulation, the back half of it, that is known as the Great Tribulation. And we are now kind of officially in that section of the end of the end times. And today we're going to look at chapter 14, which is essentially a trailer, like a movie trailer, of the end of the end of the end. So it looks at the end of the Great Tribulation, which is the end of the end times. So we're going to get little snippets. Pretty much everything you see in Revelation 14 will be explained in greater detail as we move through chapters 15 and 16 and 17 and 18 and 19. But today we'll get some of these previews and, and get to little peeks into them and try to understand them a bit, but know that we'll understand them in greater detail as, as time goes on. So eventually we will get out of this great tribulation. We will get out of this judgment and wrath and such. And eventually we will get to the second coming of Jesus. We will get to Satan being taken care of. We will get to a new heaven and a new earth. We'll get to a final judgment. We'll get to a lot of things, but today, here we are in chapter number 14. And I want us to pick it up in verse number one. We are going to read through this together and understand it together. If you're new, let me say welcome. Our habit as a church is to preach through books of the Bible literally verse by verse, and it forces us to talk about the things that the text talks about rather than me hobby horsing whatever I want to talk about. Uh, we just allow the text to guide us. And if that's new to you, I think that you'll really enjoy that. So we're going to work through the chapter today, all 20 verses of chapter number 14. We're going to start with the lamb and his 144,000. And we'll see, first of all, that they're protected. So look in verse number one, here's what John says. He says, I looked and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 having his father's name written in their foreheads. So first of all, many have pointed out the immediate contrast to chapter 14, verse one and chapter 13, verse, I think 18, the last verse of chapter 13, the one right before it. Because chapter 13 was about this mark or the seal that would be put on someone who worships the beast, and it's the number, right? It's the number of the beast, 666. Chapter 14, verse 1 is the name of the Father, and some have said, wouldn't it be like Satan to treat his people like a number, but God to treat his people like a name? And just the contrast of how uh, the devil would treat his people and God would treat his people. But it says that there's this 144,000. Now, if you're new to our study, that may not mean anything to you, but we actually have covered this group of people back in chapter number seven. We saw a group of 144,000. They were Jewish men who had been sealed. They would be preserved and protected so that they could witness for the Lord during this time period. And some have said, is this the same group? And I would argue, yes, probably. That this is the same group of people. And what we see is that 
these chapters later, there's still 144,000 of them, first of all. When God said, I would protect you and I would preserve you and I would keep you, you don't end up where he's like, ah, I lost a few. I'm only 139,000 now. No, there's 144. He has them all still. They are with Jesus, it says, and they're at Mount Zion. Now, honestly, how you interpret Mount Zion will determine how you see the next few verses and how they unfold. And there's a couple thoughts on what Mount Zion is because the Bible uses Mount Zion in a couple different ways. The primary way Mount Zion is used is actually for Jerusalem, the city. If you have ever gone to Israel, then you have likely stood uh, on the Mount of Olives and looked across the Kidron Valley into Jerusalem. And there, as you look at the city, the first thing that kind of jumps out at you is the Dome of the Rock and is uh, the Temple Mount, where you see kind of the iconic postcard image of Jerusalem. But off to the left of that is the city of David, the original kind of footprint of Jerusalem. But behind the city of David would be a section of Jerusalem known as Mount Zion. Zion meaning highest point or most secure point. And some have said this is speaking of literally physically on earth. Others have said the Bible sometimes refers to heaven as Mount Zion, which is this talking about? And I honestly cannot say with 100% certainty, but I am prone to think that this is talking about heaven. And I'll show you why as we get to verses two and three and four uh, here in a few moments. But whether it's talking about physically on earth or in heaven, one thing we can know is that this speaks to the security that God offers his people. They are still sealed. They are still protected. Even Mount Zion itself means a secure point. Uh, We would use maybe a, a city or a place like Fort Knox. And when you think Fort Knox, most of you would think gold and security, a place that's very secure. Mount Zion is that way. And what it's saying is this group of people that God said he would protect and preserve and keep secure are still protected and preserved and still secure. And that's important to know for us that when God says that he seals us in salvation, when God says that he keeps us and protects us, that we can rely on his word. But it tells you not just that they're protected, it tells you that they're praising. Verse number two, I heard the voice from heaven as of a voice of many waters, as of a voice of great thunder. So this Niagara Falls of a voice, this thunderstorm of a voice. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And I immediately, I don't know about you, but when I read that, I went to the 12 days of Christmas right away. I was just immediately like 12 drummers drumming, 11 harpers harping and a partridge. And that's just what I thought of, harpers harping. But here is this voice and here are these harpers and and this praise that happens. Verse three, they sung as it were a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and before the elders. Now, all through Revelation, we've seen the throne. We've seen the four beasts. We've seen the elders. And it's always in reference to heaven and heaven's throne room. This is why I think Mount Zion is referring to heaven. And it says that they're there and they're singing and they sung middle of verse three, a song that no man could learn that song, but the 144,000, which were redeemed from the earth. What is this saying? It's saying that there are musical instruments and there is thunderous praise and there is roaring worship as these begin to worship the lamb and they sing this new song. Not one from a hymnal, and I'm grateful for the songs in the hymnal. 
The songs that are 100 years old or 200 years old, and I'm grateful for Isaac Watts or Martin Luther or Fanny Crosby or people that have written hymns over the years, but this is actually a new song, which is important because it's important that the people of God continually express not just what God meant to Fanny Crosby, but what God meant to them, what God is doing in their life, and that they have a musical and a lyrical and a melodious expression of how God is working in their life. And apparently this is a song that the 144,000 are set apart that we can sing something that God's done in our life that is unique to us, that no one else really can sing. This is our song. This is, this is our anthem. This is our praise. And they begin to praise him. And there's immediately this important lesson in, in the text. That it's God's job to protect and to preserve, but it is our job to praise. And you don't, you don't want to switch those job descriptions, right? You protecting your soul, spiritually protecting yourself, is not a you job. Don't put that on your to-do list. That's a God job. You preserving your own soul so that you can be saved from hell and the devil is not a you job. That's a God job. You let him protect and preserve. You say, well, if, if I am saved from sin and I'm saved from hell, I'm saved from the devil, and that's a God job, what's my job? Your job's to praise. Your job is to say glory. Your job is to let the anthems ring. Your job is to worship and to sing and to extol and to magnify and glorify the one who has saved you. And you see this little blueprint here of God protecting and God preserving, but these ones praising. You say, what do you mean protected and preserved? Like they're, if they're in heaven, are they dead? Yeah, it would seem so. That they were martyred somehow. Well, were they really protected if they were martyred? Yes. The, remember the two witnesses of chapter 11? If you weren't here then, then just forget this. But if you were here then, remember those two? Who God had spared so that no one could hurt them until their mission was accomplished. But then after their mission was accomplished, they were allowed to be martyred. It appears that in the same way, God has protected these individuals, this group of 144,000, so that they can worship him and serve him so that they can proclaim him. But now that time has come where the job is done and they're allowed to be martyred and they're in heaven and they're worshiping. And he has every single one of them. They're secure. You know, the Bible tells us that it doesn't profit us if we gain the whole world, but we lose our own soul. But don't try to keep your own soul because if you try to keep your soul, you'll lose it. How do you, how do you keep your soul? You give it. You trust it to the Lord and he'll keep it for you. He's the one who protects, right? And we go to great lengths to protect things that are valuable to us, to protect our children, our family, our valuables, like our jewelry or our watches, to protect our social security number. We get uh, alarm systems, we hire guards, we pay money to protect things. But what is more precious than your soul? What is more valuable than your soul? Nothing. And God says, I'll protect that, I'll preserve that, you praise me for it. But then it says these 144,000, they're protected, they're, they are praising, but they're also pure. Verse number four, these are they which were not defiled with women for their virgins. These are they which follow the lamb whithersoever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile. 
for they are without fault before the throne of God. I would sincerely love to preach a whole sermon on those descriptors, but I will spare you today. I'll get you out in time for lunch, don't worry. The ones that jump off the page at me though, and I hate to be choosy, is the first one, because the first one kind of confuses people sometimes. They're not defiled of women because they're virgins. And the natural question comes like, if I'm not a virgin, does that mean I'm like defiled or is that sinful? Like didn't God create marriage and didn't he create sexuality? And isn't that sexuality if it's expressed in the right way in that lanes and avenues that God has created for it to rightfully be expressed, isn't that a good thing? And the answer is yes. What this is saying is twofold. Number one, this is a group who has spared themselves from the pagan practices of the day that were filled with not just idolatry, but debauchery and tons of immorality and that they didn't partake in any of that. But it is also saying that apparently there is, there's no marriage and or consummation of marriage because they've remained single, presumably in an effort to serve God to the fullest. And marriage is a gift. Children are a gift. Children are an heritage of the Lord. But marriage and parenting comes with inherent responsibilities that does rob you of some bandwidth that you could devote to serving the Lord if you were single or did not have children. That is a, that is a classic truth that 1 Corinthians 7 puts out. That singleness is not for everybody, but if someone is single, they are not a second-class citizen. In some ways, those that are single or perhaps widowed or a widower, that they can actually be a better citizen of the kingdom because they can fully, wholeheartedly commit themselves. You say, what are you saying? I should follow Jesus and go all in and get divorced? No. I should put my kids up for adoption? No. I'm not saying that. But I am saying the stone-cold truth that that requires mental, emotional, physical bandwidth to give to your family that you cannot put other places, right? You can't be in two places at once. Even Jesus kind of tipped his hat to this when he talked about the great tribulation. And he said, hey, when that comes, whoa, like watch out. He said, if, if you're pregnant when that comes, or if you have little kids or like you're a nursing mother or something, like double whoa. Like that's gonna be really hard because when you're running for your life, it's harder to run for your life when you got a two-year-old in tow. And he just recognized the practicality of the moment and said, that's going to be more difficult for you. And it appears as though this group of, of men said, we want to fully devote ourselves and we want to be all in so much so that their testimony was they followed the lamb wherever the lamb went. Wherever Jesus led they followed. Whatever Jesus said to do, they did. And that's a beautiful testimony that I hope that all of us can have. First of all, it presumes that he leads and we follow, right? That presumes, like if I'm following Jesus, he's the shepherd, I'm the sheep, he gets to call the shots. Which I know is a scary proposition for many to surrender your will to someone else. But that's how it works in following Jesus you don't get to follow and, and him not be the leader. But then he leads and they say yes. And I, I would encourage you to ask yourself this morning, where am I following Jesus? Where is he leading me? What new pasture is he pushing me into? What new mountain is he wanting me to climb? You say, I don't know. I mean, I'm kind of at a standstill. Like, 
I, don't, I feel like I've just kind of been just grazing this pasture for a minute and we just took a time out, you know, we had a little pit stop over here. Well, how long has that pit stop been? Like a week or a month or like a year, five years? I don't have a verse for this, but it would make sense to me that sometime in the last five years, God may have pushed you to go follow him somewhere that was scary for you to follow him. That he may have put you in a faith zone. That he may have wanted you to do something that was outside of your comfort zone or write a check that hurt or do something that was big or bold or audacious that he said, I'm leading you here. And you naturally said, I don't wanna follow you there. That's scary for me. Like that's how that works, right? And if there's been no following, like, I don't know, I'm just here. I'm not following anywhere. I'm just doing my thing. Same old, same old, week after week, month after month, year after year. Well, I don't know if it's he's not leading or you're not following, but there may be a disconnect there. And this group said, we follow the lamb wherever he leads. Wherever he tells me to go, I go, right? And they have this testimony of being pure people that live for the Lord. One author put it this way. He said, the name of God was on their forehead, so the Lord was on their mind. They sung a new song, so a song was on their lips, and they followed the lamb wherever he went, so the lamb was in their sight. The Lord was on their mind, a song was on their lips, and the lamb was in their sight. That's a beautiful testimony. The Lord is on my mind, and a song is on my lips, and the lamb is in my sight, and may that be true of everyone, not just these 144,000. The trailer now kind of switches. It gives you this the 144,000 and they're worshiping and they're on Mount Zion and they're protected, but it just kind of goes immediately to something else and gives you a different clip that you can see. And there's these three messages that come from angels all right in a row. Here's the first one, verse number six. It's concerning belief. It says, I saw an, another angel, <coughs> excuse me, fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God, give him glory, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and sea and the fountains of the waters. Now, this is a beautiful moment. You are about to get some messages from angels that are scary. But before you do, the precursor to this is a beautiful message where an angel comes to proclaim the everlasting good news and to basically write it in the sky and to say, worship God, fear him. Judgment is coming, turn to him. Here is the good news. And it's just a beautiful moment where it shows the reconciling heart of God. That God has always been reconciling, right? Creation proclaims his glory. The church proclaims the good news. You have already in Revelation, 144,000 begin to propagate the good news. You have two witnesses that stand up and begin to proclaim. But now you have on top of all of that creation of the church or these witnesses or those witnesses, now you have an angel who's preaching the good news to all the kindreds and tribes and tongues. And God is writing the gospel in the sky. Yet what we'll find is people still reject and spurn and say no. But we get, before we get there, you get this moment where God is proactively warning and God is proactively witnessing and reaching out to the world in a supernatural way. 
And here's what the next verse says, verse eight, there followed another angel. And here's what he said. He said, Babylon's fallen, that great city, because she made all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now that's one verse, and we're gonna explore this in, in much greater detail. This is why it's kind of a trailer. You'll get the whole movie later. In chapters to come, we will see this idea of Babylon. And for now, we'll just leave it at the, the short version because this is one version, it is the short version. Babylon is more or less the world's system, the world's economic system, the world's religious system. And this angel is coming and proclaiming that the world system is crumbling and you should not put your trust in it. And it, it is going to fall, it is falling. The next verse, here's what he says. This is concerning the beast. Here's one on belief, here's one on Babylon, here's one on the beast, which was chapter 13. The third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Now this is the part where you would have like dun, 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 play. Like this is the, this is a scary moment. It says that, that wrath of the wine of God is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. Meaning, this is undiluted wrath. This is, not, this is not like a smidge of mercy and grace just kind of mixed in with wrath. Like this is, this is pure wrath. And here's what it says. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of his holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever. They have no rest day nor night. Who worship the beast in his image and whosoever receives the mark of his name. Now you're seeing why we preach the Bible verse by verse, because this is the part that I wouldn't pick to preach. If I'm just blunt and honest, it's not the fun part. But it's black ink on white paper. What this is saying is, reject the wrath, reject the gospel, reject the grace, reject what, what God is offering, and it is wrath that is not watered down in the least. And there is a path where this leads when you reject God. It's not a path that leads to nowhere. It is a path that leads to somewhere and it's somewhere you don't wanna be. It is the highway to hell. This is not where you want to be. This is not the road that you want to travel. And while there is this warning and this witnessing up front, it tells you those that reject it, this is the, the grim reality. And some of them said, wait, time out. Doesn't this feel like heavy handed or manipulative of God where God's like, hey, Love me from your heart willingly or hell. I think that's the wrong way to look at it. The truth of the matter is, and I don't have time to do a dissertation on Romans 1, 2, and 3, but the cliff note version is you're already condemned. Your sin precludes you from living in God's home or being part of God's family and being a part of glory and perfection that you already condemned, you can't keep your own rules, like the rules you set for yourself, you can't even keep those half the time, much less keep God's rules. And that is sin and that is wrong and we are condemned and we are already rowing our own boat to hell. And God in his love and in his grace and in his mercy says, I want to save you from that. I want to provide a way of escape from that. So not only does Jesus come to warn us and to expose darkness with light 
and to stand on the side of the highway to hell, waving his arms and shooting flares in the air saying, this is where you're headed. But he also at great cost to himself provides an off ramp and says, you don't have to go this way. You can exit stage right. You can go off this way. You can follow me. You can come to heaven. You don't have to go down this road. And there are people that see billboard after billboard and sign after sign and message after message and say, no, I want my path. And God is being kind. It's, un, it's unkind to be unclear. And he is being clear. If you reject and spurn and trample the love and the grace of God, that does not end well. And I hate to read this text, much less preach it, but it is what it is. That doesn't end well. So do not reject it. But he immediately contrasts it and gives you this this note that is not just a note of hope. It is like an anthem of hope. And he immediately follows it in verse number 12. And he says, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, right, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. Right, you get it? 9, 10, 11, bad news bears. Reject Jesus, and this is what is in store for you. Choose to to follow Satan. This is what is in store for you. And God offers his grace, but it's kind of like Revelation 3, right? The, The imagery of God standing at the door and knocking. Like he'll knock on your door, but he won't bust it down, nor will he sneak in the back window. He won't force himself on you. You gotta let him in. And those that won't let him in, here's what it is. But those that do serve him, he immediately shifts. Verse 12, the saints, the faithful, the ones that keep his word, those ones. And he says, here's what I want you to write about those that are dead in Christ. Those that know Jesus as their savior and have Christ and die. Now, I don't know about you. I'm interested in that, right? People are constantly talking about the afterlife and speculating. And what does it say? Here's what the Bible says. Those that know Jesus and those that are dead in Christ, number one, they're rejoicing. Right blessed are those that are dead in Christ. The Greek word that means happy or rejoicing. They are blessed. This is not a burden to bear. This is not something that is just kind of this grayish future for them that is that is nettlesome or is boring or is bland. No, it is rejoicing that they are now with God and they are singing and they are praising and they are leaping and they are dancing and they are having a good time. They're rejoicing. Adrian Rogers said it this way about heaven. He said, heaven is all the loving heart of God can desire, the omniscient mind of God can conceive, and the omnipotent hand of God can perform. The God who sculpted wings of a butterfly and blended the hues of a rainbow and painted meadows with daffodils is the same one who made heaven. How beautiful will it be? They are rejoicing, they are blessed. But then it says this, and I I get real excited about this, I'm not gonna lie. They are resting They're rejoicing that they may rest from their labors. 
They were working, they were laboring. It was toilsome, it was hard, but they're resting from their labors. Now you tell me, and I have to know, it's, it's probably more than normal today because we've had this dark, gray, dreary few days. How many of you would say, I could use a nap this afternoon? Sign me up, who wants a nap? Anyone wanna join the nap club today? How many of you would say, I could use a nap like for the whole week? Give me a seven day straight nap. I'd like one of those, right? Why, because we get tired, don't we? We get worn out. Part of adulting is being worn out. You figure that out yet? It's just like part of life. Some of you right now, you say, Pastor, I'm tired. I know you are, hang in there. Pastor, I'm tired of life. Like I'm, I'm about to check out in general and call it quits. I'm just tired. Pastor, I'm a mom to little kids. I'm tired. I hate my name right now. It's mom, 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 mom. Constantly, I'm on this hamster wheel of laundry and the cooking and the cleaning and the kids and I'm disciplining. I'm telling them no and no and no and they don't get it. It's not sinking in. I'm not, I'm not getting anywhere. I'm, I'm wore out. Some of you dads are worn out. I'm a teenager now. And every time I turn around, it's another fight. It's another hassle. And I just want to kick it into neutral and give up and say, I'm done parenting for a month. Do whatever you want. That's the temptation. It's what I want to do. But I can't do that. And on top of that, I got to go to work and I'm, I'm tired. It gets tiring to lead, to step forward, to, to push into new territory, to, to have the heavy demands that come with that. You can get worn out. If I'm honest, there have been more than a few occasions over six or seven years where I've just been just tired. We're like, I just want to quit. There's been more than a few nights where I quit and then the next morning just had to hire myself back. <laughs> Truth, I'm, like, I don't know what I signed up for, God, but this wasn't it. Like, this wasn't it. I don't like this. We wear out, don't we? Anyone can relate with this? I get tired of the spiritual struggle and fighting my flesh and my coworkers and my family who don't get it and make fun of me and they ostracize me and they think I'm nuts now. I'm, I'm cuckoo for Jesus or something. I'm just, I, they, I just, I'm tired of it. Listen, listen, it's okay to be tired. Honestly, you're supposed to be tired. If you weren't tired, you're probably doing something wrong. But how do you reap in due season if you faint not? How do you, how do you faint not? Here is the patience of the saints. Where is the patience of the saints? Where's the endurance of the, of the saints? Well, know that the dead in Christ shall rest from their labors. It's the hope that it won't always be like this. It's the promise that there's rest from my labors. And that's a beautiful promise. To know that one day this can melt away and I won't be this tired. Some of you need to know this. You need to know, just don't quit. Here's the patience of the saints, endure, keep going. You're, you're about to jump out of a good marriage or a good job or a good church because you're wore out. Listen, don't quit. What is, what is right now? Right now, it's the fourth quarter. Right now, it's the 12th round. Right now, it's the ninth inning. You're tired in the fourth quarter. You're tired in the 12th round. You're tired in the ninth inning. But you don't quit then, you go harder. You push, you get to the end, and then you rest when the game is done, right? And this is saying, push till the game is done, but know that rest is coming. 
Those that are dead in the Lord. What should we think about my, my, my granny who, who died and went to be with the Lord? She loved Jesus and she's in heaven. What is that like for her now? She is rejoicing, she is resting. And then thirdly, there's reward. It says, their works do follow them. Now don't, don't reverse that. Their works don't lead them, their works follow them, okay? Your works don't lead you to heaven. Your works don't get you to heaven. Jesus gets you to heaven. It's your faith in him. Your works don't lead you to heaven, but your works follow you to heaven. There's rewards. What did Jesus say? Find someone who's down and out, the least of these, and give them a cup of water in my name. Great is your reward in heaven. You, you're doing that for the right reasons, trying to help other people. I'll notice that. I'll see it. I'll reward you for that. This is not the sum total of heaven, but this is some of heaven, rejoicing and resting and being rewarded. But immediately the trailer switches again, and this is the last part. It gives you this little window into this great harvest. And we'll see more of this as we move through the book, but we'll, we'll get a little snapshot of it today. Verse 14. And I looked and behold a white cloud and upon the cloud, one sat like the son of man, having on his head a golden crown and in his hand, a sharp sickle. Now, I don't know what you were expecting. We're like, I see Jesus in the clouds with a golden crown and the grim reaper sickle, right? Like you probably weren't expecting that. You were probably expecting like, I don't know, like a book or a scroll or a horse or like angels or something, but no, a sickle, a sharp one at that. Verse 15, another angel came out of the temple and he cried with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud and said, thrust in your sickle and reap for the time has come for thee to reap for the harvest of the earth is ripe. Is this good reaping or bad reaping? Well, you're about to see in a minute that it's quote unquote bad reaping or something that is not to be desired. Verse 16, he that sat on the cloud did it. He thrust in a sickle on the earth and the earth was reaped. Verse 17, and another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven. He also having a sharp sickle. And you're about to see the imagery in, in very similar terms, but in another way. Uh, verse 18, another angel came out from the altar which had power over fire. And he cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle. And he said, thrust in thy sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for her grapes are fully ripe. Both occasions you see it's ripe, it's ripe, it's time, it's time to reap. Let's, let's take the sickle and let's reap. Here's what happens, verse 19. The angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Not good. And the winepress was trodden without the city and blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horse's bridles by the space of 1,600 furlongs. He said, Pastor, what did we just read? First of all, this is chocked full of Old Testament imagery. And you really do have to know some pieces of Daniel and Joel and Isaiah for, for this to make sense. But this is talking about a great day of wrath. This is talking about what some would call Armageddon. This is talking about a moment where evil is riper than ripe and God is finally done and things are going to turn a chapter. And this is describing, and we'll see in greater detail as we move through Revelation, the armies of the earth gathered together against God and his people and Jesus coming in 
power and in glory and in wrath to say, I'm done. Game over. And once again, this is not, this is not pretty. But it is in many ways hopeful. This has actually served as imagery for anything from the Grim Reaper to lyrics that we sing. This actually served as imagery for a song in the 1800s that you probably are familiar with, Julia Ward Howe, who was perhaps the most famous American woman in the 1800s, who uh, basically got Mother's Day to be adopted. Mother's Day is coming up here in a couple weeks. And she pushed big for the celebration of Mother's Day. She advocated for women's rights, most particularly for the women's right to, to vote. And during the Civil War, at the very, very early days of the Civil War, the Union Army was assembled and being drilled by General McClellan, who was a terrible general, but a great uh, practicer of war. And he could drill like nobody else. And she went up to watch the army and to see this army move with precision and authority. The only thing she could think of to try to describe its force was Revelation chapter number 14, when she wrote the words to the Battle Hymn of the Republic. And she penned the words that day, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He's trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword or sickle, you could say. His truth is marching on. When she saw that, it evoked images of like God and his army and all it did was make her think about like there's coming a day where Jesus will come in his glory and the fateful lightning of his sword will be unsheathed and unleashed and it will be like, whoa. And this text describes in a short version that where God comes in power and glory and it tells you that the evil is fully ripe. And I want to leave you with this note of hope. Because while you can read this and it can be like, man, that is sheer terror. That is, uh, that's gory. That is, what do I do with this? All of us from time to time, or perhaps often, get this sense inside of ourselves that like evil is growing and it feels like it should be stopped, but no one's stopping it. Ever been there? Where you're, where you're sitting there and you're saying, I, I see this and I love this and I'm hopeful about this in the world and this, but I also see this and like we're living in Looney Tunes. Like I see this and all of a sudden what is wrong is now paraded as righteous and what is righteous is now not just besmirched or belittled or ignored, but is trampled as though it is evil. And it feels like up is down and down is up. And it feels like this is only growing. Like, I think I'm screaming into the wind over here. Like, I'm trying to do my best to, to post on Facebook and I'm trying to do my best to, to talk to people. I'm trying to do my best to advocate, but I, I, just, I just feel like I'm not gaining any ground. Like, I feel like righteousness is losing ground and it feels like evil is becoming more ripe, as it were. Like, it's just growing and growing and it's more profound and it's more pervasive. And what do you do in those moments? Because you can beat your head against the wall and get real frustrated and real upset and you can even get real cynical. And that's not the right answer. 
The right answer is to say, I know there is coming a day, and it may not be today, and it may not be tomorrow, and it may not even be this year, but I know there is coming a day where evil will be checked. There is coming a day where it will be riper than ripe, and that God will insert himself and assert himself, and that this is not going to go on unhinged forever that I can rest in the fact that God is still in control, that it isn't just like our world or our culture circling the toilet bowl, but that God still has a plan and his hands are still on the steering wheel and that one did not slip by the goalie and that I can trust that God will take care of what he needs to take care of when he needs to take care of it. And this is meant to be for a Christian, a note of hope to say that there is a God who does not let anything slip by him who knows everything and that people get away with nothing, including you, but store up everything and that God will take care of this when the time is right. And while that can be heavy and that can be gruesome, it is, it is the truth. And I would, never, I would never want to serve a God who wasn't willing to act in justice, who wasn't willing to check evil, who wasn't willing to step up and you find this in a magnanimous way here at the end of Revelation chapter number 14 that's meant to be this little picture. So here are the pictures. Let me just review the trailer with you very quickly. You have this picture of God preserving his people that however many he set aside and sealed, many he has all of them. And those people praise him and they worship him and we should follow the lamb with us wherever he goes. Then you have this God in his mercy giving the message of salvation and the glorious gospel again to the earth, but many reject that and they, and they end up rowing their own boat to hell. Then you find this hope of those that don't reject it. What happens to them? Those that are dead in Christ and with the Lord, what does eternity look like? It looks like rejoicing and it looks like reward and it looks like rest, but then all of a sudden it goes back to, well, what about the evil on earth and what's gonna happen there and God's gonna deal with it in one final cosmic way and take care of all of it. And that is the two and a half minute trailer to a longer movie that's about to unfold in chapters 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19 that we'll see as the weeks go on.